So, in 2017, the American journalist Gemma Hartley wrote an article in Harper's Bazaar that was called Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up. And it was viewed over two billion times. It clearly hit a nerve. So, this episode of Ideas at the House goes out to all of you women who have ever been asked by your partners whether you want help with the housework. That's right, help cleaning the place where your partner also lives. Help with minding the children that you both brought into the world. Help with finding a babysitter. This episode goes out to you. So at All About Women 2019, Gemma Hartley spoke with the journalist Cassie McCullough about all of these things, all of the reasons why these dynamics are very bad in your relationship and what you can do to change them. How exciting is this? It's a whole opera house full of women ready to talk about the things that really matter to all of us. I'm absolutely delighted to be here today. My name's Cassie McCullough. I work for ABC Radio. I do a weekday morning program on ABC Radio Sydney and also co-host a book show called The Bookshelf on Radio National. Uh, and it's my great, great pleasure to be here today to introduce you to Gemma Hartley and also uh, hear some of her incredible ideas. Gemma's article that was published in Harper's Bazaar uh, in 2017 has been shared one million times. She also, it, it's also been clicked on two billion times. Now, that is an extraordinary number, and that suggests to me that people are going back to it and back to it because it speaks so strongly about something that we sometimes don't even have the words to express. Uh, the book that she's written, Fed Up, Navigating and Redefining Emotional Labour for Good, uh, has been out for four months and it's already a runaway bestseller. So please join me in welcoming from Nevada, Reno, Gemma Hartley. Thank you so much. I am really thrilled to be here in the Opera House speaking to all of you today. Um, like Cassie said, I am an American journalist, uh, and my article, Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up, is what turned into this book, Fed Up. But before I get into how that came to be, uh, I want to start out with a question, which is, what do we mean when we call women nags? When I think of a woman who is nagging, and it's always a woman because we do not use this term to describe men, I think of a woman who is no longer using that careful tone of voice, who has asked time and time again for something and has not been heard. And I think it's really interesting that we use this term nag, that we place the negativity on the woman who is asking for help, who is just asking for something incredibly reasonable. And we don't say anything of the person that is not doing their part. And so when I think of the word nag and what we mean when we say a woman is being a nag, what we're really saying is she isn't being heard the first time. She is being ignored. She is not being seen. Her work is becoming invisible. 
And my husband would never say nag. He's a really good man, really progressive, but I found myself internalizing this word. So though he would never call me a nag, I would think of myself sometimes as a nag, because if I would ask him to do something and he would forget, I would really weigh whether or not I wanted to ask again or just do the job myself, because I didn't want to become a nag. And if I did ask him again, I really didn't want to ask a third time, so I would usually do the job myself. And I had all of this negative self-talk about you know, why I didn't want to do that, why I didn't want to be a nag. And beneath all of that was this question that was brewing, which was, why is this my job in the first place? Why am I the one reminding my husband to do these really simple tasks? Why am I the one to mail out his mother's birthday card? Why, you know, why is this my responsibility? And so that sort of percolated for a while and eventually turned into my article. Uh, for those of you who have not read it, it goes um, about describing a really frustrating Mother's Day experience I had. Uh, at the time, we had three very young children, two, four, and six, and I had asked for a cleaning service for Mother's Day. And I was very specific in this request I wanted my husband to get it for me so that I didn't have to worry about this job and he could do all of the logistical stuff behind it and make sure it works in the schedule, make sure it works in the budget. There's a lot of extra steps that I wanted him to see. And instead he decided he would clean the bathrooms himself <laughs> on Mother's Day. So he went and he got all the cleaning supplies and he went into the bathroom and cleaned. And he did a great job, but I was left with our three young children still juggling all of those needs that I had expected to be relieved of. So I was thinking, oh goodness, what do I make them for lunch? I have to remember that this kid wants this color of sippy cup. I have to look in the fridge, realize that we're running low on orange juice, keep a little mental note of that for the next time we go to the store. I did not anticipate doing all these things, and I really did not anticipate picking up my husband's clothes that he had left on the living room floor, but I did. And I went to take them and put them in the hamper in our closet. And there was this big blue Rubbermaid storage box in the middle of our closet, and I was so angry when I saw it because it had been there for two days. It's full of gift wrap that he had gotten down, out of a, this high shelf in our closet. And it's very difficult for me to put away. My husband is six foot, and he can easily just like lift it up with one hand, throw it up there. And I was thinking to myself every time I saw it, surely he is not waiting for me to tell him to put this away. Surely he is going to see it, and he is going to put it away. And then at this point in Mother's Day, where I was already not having a great Mother's Day, I really lost it. And instead of going and asking him, could you finally put this away, I went the more passive-aggressive route. And I went into the kitchen, and I dragged a kitchen chair all the way through our house into our closet, and I put it back up on the shelf, and I did not do so quietly. <laughs> there was a lot of theatrics going on so that 
he could hear me and came out from the bathroom and sees me doing this and says, you know, if you want that put away, all you have to do is ask. <laughs> this did not go over well. I was livid and I was just at the end of myself. And I said, you know what? <laughs> That's the problem. I don't want to have to ask. And despite the fact that I was crying in the closet on Mother's Day, it was a real moment of clarity for me because I realized what was so exhausting about this work. I didn't want to micromanage housework. I wanted a partner who was taking equal initiative for our shared life together. And that was what I was not getting. And when we started to have this conversation, it was a little bit hard for my husband to see why it mattered so much that I had to ask. What's so hard about asking? And this is a question that I get a lot. What is so hard about asking for help? And I think what is so hard about it is that we are the ones keeping track of everything that needs to be done. We are keeping the mental lists. We are delegating out all of this work. And we are expecting to have an equal partner when really we have someone who we are delegating out this work to. And it takes up our time, and it takes up our mental space, and it takes up our emotional energy. And I was not <laughs> this clear in describing this while I was, you know, crying in the closet. <laughs> and so telling him this required some damage control, where I had to talk about um, emotional labor, and it became more emotional labor, because my husband, you know, for all his good qualities, was still really responding to any sort of criticism in a very patriarchal way. And so when I would tell him, this is not working, you know, you are not doing the same amount that I am doing, he would say, but I'm, I'm cleaning the bathroom right now. And he would say, look at all the things I do, and I do so much more than my dad did, and I do so much more than my granddad did. And, you know, that's very true, but I did not marry your father, I married you. And I came to this relationship expecting things to be more equal. And I took a while to sort of think back on that experience, and I wrote this article, and I published it on Harper's Bazaar. And it went really viral. Within the first week, it had half a million shares on social media. So clearly, I was not alone in this uh, feeling <laughs> that I was doing all of this invisible work. And so that viral article turned into this book. And what I wanted to do was um, look into why this divide still existed. Because I considered myself to be in a progressive relationship. I considered us to be ahead of the curve. And yet, this was a problem I was hearing, not just from me, but from my friends and from people all around the world who had really good relationships, but still were expected to shoulder this burden. And I'm not gonna break the whole book down for you, but I will tell you this. Everything that I found out along the way makes me really hopeful. So everything that I found out about emotional labor points to the fact that we are socialized from a very young age to take on these very separate roles. 
Women, as they grow up, are taught that emotional labor is something that they are naturally better at. But this isn't true. Everything in my research points to the fact that we are all having similar aptitudes for this type of work, but we're only training women to do it. And so that means we can unlearn all of these deeply held biases that we have about who should do emotional labor and who's good at emotional labor. And I know this because a lot of my book talks about my own personal experience. Uh, I was writing the book on emotional labor, so I figured me and my husband better figure it out <laughs> um, or else I won't have a leg to stand on. And so we've gone through this process of rebalancing emotional labor. My husband has gone through this process of learning these, these skills for the very first time in his life. And as you might guess, it comes with a lot of the, you know, the benefits that you would think it would have. I have a lot more time now. I have a lot more mental space. I have a lot more emotional energy with which to live my life. But there were a lot of unexpected benefits, too. I talk a lot about how exhausting this type of work is, especially when women are the only ones taking it on. But what happens when both people are taking it on? Is it just shifting that burden onto someone else? And the answer was no. When my husband took on his share of the emotional labor in our household, it actually benefited him. He was able to step more fully into his life. He was more involved in the details, and it brought him more fully into the human experience. I think being able to understand emotional labor means that we can understand one another. So women are really used to doing this work where they are understanding everyone around them. They are anticipating the needs of others. But when everyone is doing that, everything runs so much better. And then I found one of the biggest benefits for me was that when we were both doing this type of work, I no longer felt like my husband did not understand my lived experience. And I didn't realize at the beginning that this was such a big deal. But I want to come back to that word nag and that experience that I had with it. I never wanted to ask my husband a second time to do something, and I really didn't want to ask him a third time. And it wasn't just that I was afraid of being called a nag, because I wasn't afraid he would call me a nag. I was afraid that I would think of myself as a nag. But what I was really afraid of was that feeling that I was invisible, that the work that I was doing didn't matter, and that my partner and the person I'm sharing my life with does not understand me. And so I think one of the greatest benefits is that I no longer feel invisible in my home. And I think we are at a point where women are really ready to start having these conversations about emotional labor, about our lived experience. And we are ready to make the invisible visible. And I think that's going to change the world. Thank you. Mm. When I was uh, getting ready to come here this morning, my partner said, oh, did you see the sheets? And I said, <laughs> no. 
said, I put them in the washing machine, in the drone. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, I read the book. <laughs> I, saw, I saw the book. Oh, that's so good. And I thought, so you thought that you would help me <laughs> with washing the sheets. <laughs> and there's the problem, because it's my job, apparently, to do the sheets, and his job to be rewarded for helping me out. <laughs> I have a friend who has a brilliant thing to do for when they come and expect that praise. She does the seal clap. <laughs> and she's like, good job! Like, really, like how you would praise a two-year-old. And she said, you know, he really, he stopped asking for praise pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the, the Speaker of the House in the US is doing a pretty good job of, of the seal clap. <laughs> oh, at the our Lady of Perpetual Shade. <laughs> Love her. Yeah. I, I can think of so many examples that your book kind of woke me up to. And you do accept it. You accept it as just the ordinary, it's, oh, I'll just do it. It'll be easier. I'll just do it because... Oh, and, and, but it did remind me of a conversation I had with a colleague who had gone on maternity leave. And I, I, I rang her up after, you know, a month or so to say, how are you going? And she, oh, the baby was waking up every two hours. She'd had mastitis. She had, you know, problems postnatally and all these things. And her mother had gotten incredible. You know, she was really... I said, oh, how's Brendan? And she said, oh, he's good. Yeah, he's... he's He's been uh, riding his bike and playing his guitar and <laughs> his life had gone on completely uninterrupted by the birth of this medical emergency. And uh, I, that was, I was reminded so much of that, that when I was reading your book, that this is something that is taken on. Lives are completely changed by this work while others continue. Why do we do that? Why do we give it away? So I think there are so many reasons for this. And I think it does start really early. We have watched so many women do this work and do it without complaint. And we've learned that it is our you know, birthright to do emotional labor. And we're taught that we're better at it. Mm. And when we look around, it looks really true. We are better at it. But the reason we're so much better at it is because we're really practiced at doing all of the emotional labor. And so it is hard to make that shift, especially, I think, for you know, all of us learning about emotional labor for the first time. It means we have to unlearn a lot of things, and we have to start you know, giving up a little bit of that control in order for other people in our lives to gain that competence. Um, and we do it also because it is easier to do it, uh, you know, let me just do it mm -hmm. because I know how to do it because I've been practicing this. But if we keep doing that, we're going to be doing it for the rest of our lives. So when you look at the long run, it makes a lot more sense to start balancing it out and going through that rough period than to be saying, just let me do it for the rest of your life. You mentioned the word control, and I, I think that's an interesting element in this. I wondered sometimes whether the home particularly is a place where women do have a, a, a rare chance at controlling their environment. Do you think that's an element too, that w somehow we do take this up because we know 
People have to come to us to know where the towels are kept. People have to come to us, you know. Th th this is a, a, maybe a, a kind of form of power that we adopt in the face of <laughs> a lack of it elsewhere. Yeah, and I think this does feed into this a little bit. I think we do take control where we can get it and we take power where we can get it. I think that really had a, a much bigger impact back when we were talking about the feminine mystique and women you know, taking all of the control that they could in the home because there was no control anywhere else. And I think what we have now is we're selling women this idea of having it all where we are in charge of everything in the home and we are in charge of everything at work and we can do it all because we are powerful women. But we shouldn't want to do it all. We should want to have everyone doing the same amount of work, especially when we are talking about partnerships. I think we really need to be cognizant of how much we are taking on for the other person. You give us examples in your book uh, about outside the home. Uh, describe this, the feedback that from air hostesses, or air stewards, I think we say now, but female stewards, and, and their role in, in, on the plane, the way they use their emotional selves all the time in their jobs. Yes, so the original book on emotional labor was written by Arlie Hochschild, and it was all about flight attendants and the work that they did and the deep emotional labor that went into that job. And so it was really about keeping everyone comfortable and happy no matter what it did to you inside. You keep that smile on your face. Um, and some of the stuff that you know, she described in the book was just horrific, you know, sexual misconduct, people throwing coffee on you, saying really lewd and horrible things, losing their temper and screaming in your face and getting spit on, and they would still have to keep a smile on their face or they would lose their job. And another part of this was a lot of the women she talked to felt a great sense of freedom in having this particular job because it was a, you know, a decent paying job and it allowed them to travel. It gave them a lot more freedom than they saw a lot of their peers having, but it came at a really deep cost uh, by doing that emotional Because they're drawing on their emotional reserves. So they're, yes. they're in a life constantly in this interaction. With yeah, she describes it as deep acting where it's not just like, you know, I'm gonna give a smile and then I'm gonna, you know, go turn around and bitch about it. It was, you would have to completely transform who you were, and you would have to use every drop of your emotional energy in order to present that mm. side of yourself. And, and they learned to see the customers as toddlers, essentially. Yes. Whose problems they had to manage. This is something that you also experienced in your, your time working at a shop called Cachet. Mm -hmm. um, you, were, you were working there when you were pregnant, in fact. Yes, I was, <laughs> I was working, um, I worked retail for many years and when I had my first child, I worked up until the day I went into labor. And I was because actually- there's no maternity yeah, no, leave. <laughs> there's no maternity leave. Um, there was no paid leave whatsoever. And so I just saved up all the vacation time I had and worked up until the day I was in labor. And so I was actually in early labor. 
and at work, <laughs> and one of the regulars came in, and she was very angry that she saw me sitting down. <laughs> I was 38 weeks pregnant and having contractions, and she was really upset that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing that regular deep acting. Normally, I, you know, as soon as a customer comes in, it's smile on the face, give that really friendly rapport, do all of that deep acting. You look great. Yes. Oh, those capri pants. That is your color. Yes. <laughs> those leopard print capri pants are you. Oh. <laughs> I totally fall for that every time. <laughs> you know. So, you know, she was expecting that and she came in and was trying on clothes and I, you know, I was having trouble keeping that up between contractions. <laughs> and she, she literally told me, she's like, you're not in labor. I remember what labor was like. It's not this. And I'm like, okay, I'll just wait. You know, I was waiting for my husband to come and pick me up and take me to the hospital. And I did have a baby the next day, so, you know, <laughs> through her. But she was probably right because the customer is. Yeah, and the customer always right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was really used to doing that deep acting work. And um, when, I, when I came to writing the book, I really saw that that emotional labor goes so far beyond, you know, these service sector jobs. Women are really expected to keep everyone comfortable and happy and to sort of bury their own emotions. Mm. Uh, so it's not something that, that exists solely in these types of jobs. It exists in the home. It exists in the workplace and out in the world. And, and if you had to remunerate someone for the, that level of competency, the, <laughs> the pay would be extraordinary. But instead, people are getting a pretty good deal out of women when they employ them to do these tasks because of all those unrecognised skills and this, this deep acting as well. So, uh, I, I thought about some of my strategies that I've used uh, while I was reading your book, and I've often employed the strike. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, way back to Lysistrata, I suppose, you could, but, but, you know, is that effective? You, you chose the, the gift box that Gemma was talking about earlier that she wanted to be replaced to where it came from. Uh, her husband had actually gotten it down to wrap her present. Uh, so, th you know, <laughs> that's why it was there. But it was still your job to put the box away. Um, so what if you just left it there? Or what I do with my sons and I've always, pretty much always, I don't do their washing because it's <laughs> their washing. So, <laughs> <laughs> and for a long time, I don't know what they actually wore and I didn't really care either. <laughs> and, you know, it's been quite effective. They're 21 and 23 now and, and they're really quite good at it. And, you know, because once you do their washing, you've got to hang it out and then you've got to sort it out from your washing. And, and, and so, th that's one success I've had. But... Is, is the strike a successful technique? So I think it depends. I've heard it work for some women. But here's where it gets really tricky, is that when we say, you know, okay, I'm just not going to do this work, eventually you're going to be the one dealing with the fallout. Especially for me being, you know, someone at the time of writing this book, I have young children. And so my three-year-old is not going to be able to get it together and, you know, uh, make it work. When they're older, absolutely. But as of this moment, you know, someone's 
got to keep juggling those balls. And if I start to drop things, then I know that, you know, if my husband does not step up, if he does not pick up the pieces, then I'm just creating more work for myself. So this is why I think we really need to stop talking about women letting it all go. Uh, and we need to start having conversations about shared standards and getting both people to do their responsibility. Um, I get a lot of <laughs> questions about me being a control freak. And a lot of women I know get those questions. And they're asked, you know, why don't you just let it go? Why don't you let the house become a mess, let them wear whatever and, you know, go on strike? And I think that really devalues the work that we do. I think that one thing that I learned from not only my own experience, but talking to a lot of other women, is that when we organize our lives, when we do emotional labor and keep this mental list running, keep these reminders going, we're not doing it arbitrarily. We're doing it because we know this is efficient. We know this is what keeps everyone comfortable and happy. And so we're not doing it because we love control. We're doing it because we love the people around us. And so I think we need to keep that in mind because when we're saying let it go, we're saying, you know, the work you do, it doesn't really matter. And I think it does. Mm. So, yes, if your uh, mother-in-law doesn't get a, a, a present or there's no dish to contribute to the Christmas lunch, there are emotional consequences of that for everybody yeah. down the line. So then you, you, you are sort of thrust into this role of, of being a Cassandra, you know, the Greek uh, woman who was cursed never to be able to see the future but never to be believed, you know, and I, I think about her a lot given that my, that's my name, you know. I <laughs> <laughs> think, hmm. So, you know, you kind of, but if you don't do this, you know, I can see this will be a disaster. So, how do you break open those conversations so you're not always being the harbinger of, of misfortune? How do you have an adult conversation and, and not have to have it 50 times a day? <laughs> so, <Tricky question. laughs> one part of this is I think me and my husband have had a lot of conversations about it, especially throughout you know, me writing this book. I started bringing it up a lot more often. I didn't wait until I got to that boiling point. Mm. Uh, but I think a lot of the times I'm asked, you know, how do we have this conversation? And moreover, how do I explain this in a way that my partner will understand? How do I sort of digest it for him and then hand it over? How do I do that emotional labor for well, him? Emotional management, isn't it? Yes, and you know, People always want to know what I said specifically to my husband. And I can tell you, I, I don't really know. We haven't had one really important conversation. And what happened is he wanted to learn mm. and he wanted to understand my life. And I think that is a standard that we should not be afraid to hold our partners to, is to say, I need you to do the effort to learn. I don't want to hold your hand through this because that's what so many women fear is that if we're gonna change the balance of emotional labor, that's just gonna be so much more work on me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to have to break it down and I'm going to have to deal with things not being done the right way. And I think that's, you know, we're back to that point where we're not expecting men to change. We're expecting to make 
the changes that are going to make it easiest for them. And I think we need to start expecting more. Mm. I think we need to expect our partners to really step up and want to understand our lives, want to make this work, and it can't keep involving that hand-holding. Yeah, I think that, that is certainly part of it. Uh, in a moment, we'll be taking some questions, so start to think about that, and I think there are some microphones uh, on either side, so if you want to make your way down to, to there, or there'll be people available on either side, I think. So what you're beginning to touch on there is the, is the much darker side of this, and that is when you have learned to take responsibility for uh, things that happen, mistakes, you're, you're very good at being a peacemaker or you're very good at being perhaps making it okay for people who have exhibited bad behaviour. Now, this is where it does become quite much more dangerous. This is not just a, a kind of division of labour, domestic discussion, or, you know, of a... Of a, of a privileged nature, once there is an element there of, of disadvantage or of some, some serious misbehaviour, this conditioning becomes very problematic for women. Yes, it does. I think, you know, we come into this conversation because we're upset about things not being equal in the home because we're expected to keep everyone comfortable and that involves delegating. But when we take this out of the home and we talk about what it looks like in the workplace and what it looks like in the world, this expectation that women are going to be the peacemakers, that they're going to keep everyone comfortable and keep them happy, means that we're going to keep our mouth shut when things are not going well. It means that we are going to do those careful calculations in our head about how we should behave when we're catcalled on the street because we are constantly making these choices about What's going to keep everyone happy? What's going to keep them comfortable? What's going to keep me safe in the world as I, you know, go through? And it really, it really does become dangerous when we start talking about rape culture, mm. when we start talking about the, you know, what's going to happen when you bring this down into a different socioeconomic class, when you bring in race. There is so much more demand for women's emotional labor in those cases and it does become really dangerous. Mm. Yes, and uh, I, 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 we, yeah, we see these court cases where people have to demonstrate what has happened to them and talk about it, and and that's so you can see the disempowerment of of that all the time, and that's part of exactly what we're talking about. Um, maybe yeah, does anyone want to want to open up uh, the conversation from the floor? I haven't, I can't actually see. Very yeah, well. I can't see anyone. Yeah, it'd be lovely to have uh -huh. some, some questions, maybe, uh, or yeah, even some reflections <laughs> on how this <laughs> has been in in your life. Yeah, hi. 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 I have a question. Thanks, Gemma. Really appreciate the insights. But it sounds like your husband has a real great growth mindset. So what <laughs> <laughs> in the instance where you're faced with someone, and as you mentioned, culturally, background, upbringing, et cetera, um, potentially coming from a very fixed mindset and not necessarily have one perspective and hence potentially he considering maybe lowering the expectation and upping them, but do you have some advice on how to, like tools, how to engage that dialogue or how to transition? because it does become, yeah, really hard. Mm, great question, yeah. Yeah, 
And so I think there are a lot of women that are in this situation where they're not dealing with someone who they feel comfortable with just, you know, throwing them in the deep end. Um, and I think one of the best things that women can do is start to set some boundaries around how much emotional labor you're going to do. And so this does involve some of that, you know, very purposeful letting go of certain things, letting go of certain expectations. Um, as far as having the conversation, I think it really helped when I was talking to my husband from a cultural standpoint. When we were talking about the different ways that we were socialized and the different ways that culture had, you know, raised me to see this as my job and not to, for him to see it as at all. Um, <laughs> but I mean, really, we, we don't teach men to look at this. We, and we're really good at making it look seamless and easy. Um, that's why this work is invisible. So I think talking about those cultural forces rather than being like, you need to start doing this, this, and this is a much easier end to the conversation than, you know, pointing out all the little nitpicky things. Mm. Mm. <coughs> Thank you for that. Uh, over here. Uh, hi. Thank hi. you for, for the talk. Um, it resonated a lot with me, particularly at work. Um, I work in, a co in the corporate, corporate uh, company. And I've been brought up now to manage a team, um, main, main men, mainly because of that peacemaker. I think that kind of that's my role, trying to make them feel as comfortable and tell them, you know, no, you're good, don't, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> like, but then I feel that it, and it's a, it, there is an emotional strain to it because it's like I'm feeling I'm dealing with shit all day. <laughs> yeah. They're very good, they're yeah. like amazing and all that, but there is yeah. that that I'm expecting to <laughs> yeah. and, uh, But I feel that if I don't do that, if I said, that's it, I'm out of, I, I don't want to do this anymore, I'll, I'll lose my job, basically. Mm. As in, they'll go, okay, then what's, why are you here? Then, mm. And I don't know if you have advice on how to deal with that in the, in, yeah, in, at work. So this is a really difficult one because I absolutely understand this and see it. And I think we're not culturally ready for it. Um, a lot of my research focuses on changing the personal, uh, changing it on the small scale first. Because like you say, there is this expectation that you are going to continue to do that. And it's really hard to change that when you're dealing with a power structure in the corporate world that says, you know, in order for women to get ahead, they have to do that nurturing. They have to put that forward. And you can talk very openly about it um, as much as you feel comfortable doing so, but I think we're at a point still where not everyone feels comfortable having those conversations yet. And so I think we need to ha start having a big cultural shift before we can start letting go of emotional labor entirely in the workplace. And I don't think we need to necessarily let it all go, but we need to have men who understand how to do that as well and how to stop placing that undue burden on women who are in that position. Maybe a, a, another way of looking at it is that that is the job and you're highly competent at it and so you therefore deserve more money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe recognizing part of that, you know, that maybe, but is it hard to articulate that? I suppose it is in the workplace. 
Yeah, but I mean, that is something. We're really used to undervaluing this socioeconomically, and we need to start bringing it up. We need to start bringing up that this is part of my job responsibilities, this is part of what I'm doing, and it is adding value to this team. And you need to start recognizing the value that it adds and start, you know, compensating accordingly for that work. Mm. Because that is a big part of how we're going to start valuing that work yep. and how we're going to start see, seeing men step up into that role. It has to be paid. Yeah. They might not see your work when it's getting done, but they'll sure see it when it's not getting done. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. That was great. Really great. Um, over here again. Hi. Thanks for the great talk. Um, I um, came here with my friend, and she booked four tickets. She said, let's take our husbands. Um, so what she did was she told them, we're going to a Dangerous Ideas Festival talk. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my husband, just a little intro, my husband is the yummy daddy at the back with the baby. But <laughs> <laughs> um, he walked in and he said, oh, I, I don't know if I know what this talk's about today. And we didn't tell them. Um, <laughs> he said, it's obviously not going to be about the rugby. <laughs> my question is about transition um, around child, um, the child sort of rearing years. Um, I was a professional ac academic, university academic for yeah. 20s and 30s and um, decided to have a career change when we had our first child. And um, I really noticed this emotional labour really completely changing the swing of our relationship. And um, as we've had our second now, um, I'm still trying to get back into the workforce starting a new business. Mm. And every time there's a sick child or uh, something, I feel like the rug is being pulled out from under my feet. But um, the, uh, yeah, the sort of the, the toll, as you say, of, um, of always asking um, becomes higher and higher because you are the one at home all the, t of the time when you're on maternity leave. Um, you, I often think I really can't live in the house when it's like this. So um, I, I do end up doing those things. So, um, now we're at the, the ch older child is at the age of going to school and there will have to be a parent who's probably doing more pickups than not. Mm. And it just seems that as, as trained as many letters I have after my name, um, <laughs> there's mm. this kind of constant feeling of the invisible tripwire not allowing me to, to do that. So that's, that's a career thing, but it's, it's deeply intertwined with the, you know, not wanting to be the nag. So I just wondered if you had sort of mm. uh, a, a case study around that sort of transition period. Yes, and I think one of the really difficult things about that transition period is that this is another structural problem. We are not set up to encourage both parents to fully parent. We are only setting up one person to do that job, and it is whoever has that paid leave, whoever has more time, whoever is there noticing all of those details, absorbing all of that information. And it really is easier to say, I know, you know, I know what needs to happen here. I'm just going to tell you what needs to be done. I'm going to continue to keep track of this. And so I think this is another structural problem where we really need to, you know, vote for change in our maternity and paternity policies so that we do have both parents taking on that care work, especially right in the beginning, because I think that is when we have the biggest divide um, in that emotional labor, because whoever is at home is the one that is picking up all of the details, picking up all of that mental work, doing all of the emotional work. And there seems to be this idea that, you know, women are naturally better suited to that. They have this intuitive bond with their baby, and, you know, that's the person that should be doing all of this work. And I think that is a load of rubbish, because when I brought my first child home, 
I had no idea what I was doing and I felt like I had no motherly intuition and yet it was still expected that I would be the one that would get it and understand it. And I think we need to start having conversations about, you know, the benefits of having both parents there for that transition time. Because once you start that divide, it's very, very difficult for the other person to catch up and to learn all of that from scratch. And I'm not saying it can't be done, especially as children get older, it gets a lot easier, but it's placing such a burden, um, especially on new mothers that are already going through so much transition. Mm. I like your ruse to... Uh, yeah, really, <laughs> good plan. Hi guys, <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> Actually, it's lovely to see so many men here, and, and uh, yeah, no, it's, it is great to have be having this conversation with men in the room as well. Yeah, thank you. Hi there, um, my name's Claire. Thanks for the discussion so far. It's going. It's been really good. Um, I just want to pick up on the theme of kind of kids as well um, mm. and reflect on what you've talked about, but also my personal experience, which is um, my mum used to do the big trolley shop on Saturday mornings of supermarket shopping. She used to tell us to strip the sheets, you know, put your washing on when we were 12, 13, 14. Me and my brother both, both learnt how to use the washing machine. Um, and my mum thinks, like, job done, raised a feminist son, so proud. Um, yeah. <laughs> and my dad never saw him in the laundry, that sort of thing. And sh she never really had a conversation with him about that. And I've asked her, like, how did this kind of end up happening? And at a high level, her response is sort of, oh, it just sort of happened. Um, but I can kind of see that happening again, probably with my brother, but also my friends and people around. And this is a pr pretty heteronormative view of the world. But, like, he's partnered and married. And to the extent that he's learnt tasks, um, but that proactive doing it and not having to be asked. Like, if someone's doing his washing for him or doing lunches, like, he knows how to do those things. But... Um, what am I trying to say and what's my question? Um, if someone steps in to do it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. Yeah. And I can see, like, they'll raise kids and then mums enlist their kids and train up their kids and somehow this jump between boys learning tasks and becoming adult men, they s we don't have this culture shift of the training that you're talking about. Like, girls and women are trained more. So even though me and my brother were both trained in those things, it doesn't kind of continue. And so even though we think, like, oh, we're all modern 21st century women now and men are learning more, I can still see that it's the, the cycle's not going to quite kick it. So what do you think we need to do to kick that culture yeah. and not just train in tasks, which we all know men can do, like press on on the washing machine. It's not hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, that circuit breaker. Where, what's, what is the circuit breaker that's stopping this move on? So I think what what is really getting in the way is, you're right, men can do these simple tasks. No one is saying like, oh, he, he couldn't figure out the washing. I mean, I actually, no, that's not true. I know a lot of women who say like, oh, he could never do the washing and he could never do what I do. And, you know, really infantilizing and enabling this behavior. Um, so I think part of it is that we need to be modeling it in our homes. I think it's really going to be hard to, you know, say I'm gonna raise my kids to you know, know how to do all of these things and I'm going to raise them to take on all of the emotional labor that they need to take on if they're not seeing everyone in their lives doing that. Mm -hmm. The men who I spoke with for the book that had the best grasp on emotional labor were generally raised by single mothers because they only had one person and saw that that emotional labor is what it takes to raise a child and what it takes to function in the world. And so 
I think we really need to value, you know, having both people doing that work. Because otherwise it's all just talk and it's going to be really easy for them to backslide and say, oh, well, someone else is doing my task. Like, I guess I can just let this go and let it, <laughs> let it fade into the background and I'm going to pretend I don't know how to do the laundry and, <laughs> you know, just look the other way. It's very easy, um, you know, to take advantage of one another. I, I think that the main thing is we need to start, you know, expecting both people in a relationship to do that work if we're going to raise another generation that is not going to have this big divide. Mm. And, and yes, and, and valuing that work means that they become more competent in so many ways. Uh, yes. So that actually becomes valued valued work. Yeah, great, great question, because I see that as well in my own family, that cycle. Um, let's do these really quickly, because it's some great questions, we're running out of time. Um, hi, I was just curious about uh, the external reaction to going through the process of getting the balance back, because uh, I think it can tend to be, oh, the woman's a ball breaker and the man's being emasculated. Um, and did you experience that and how did you deal with it, if you did? Oh, how did I deal with the uh, men on the internet? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. You know what? Um, when I went through this process and... Uh, you know, we were figuring out this balance. Like, yes, the outside chatter that was coming in would definitely have been like, oh my God, look at how much he does. You should be grateful. That's the thing that I hear a lot. And I hear it from women too. Um, you should be grateful for how much he does. Look at how much he does compared to, you know, your friend's husbands. Look at how much he does compared to all of these other men. And you know, it, it always baffles me that that's what they want to go to. And, you know, my husband even at first would go there and be like, I do such a better job than, than your <laughs> friend's husband over here who, you know, calls watching his kids babysitting them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, you do. But, I, you know, if you guys want to get married, you can talk about that. <laughs> but I... I think that I am in a relationship with you and the only person who you should be comparing yourself to is me. And <laughs> so I think um, I, I didn't really listen to the, all of that noise about, you know, you should be grateful because I think that is something that we tell women all the time. You should be grateful. You have, so, you have it so much better than the women that came before you. You have it mm -hmm. so much better than women in other places mm -hmm. who are experiencing true oppression. And the thing is, that's just saying, like, sit down and shut up and stop complaining. Stop trying to change things. And it's, <laughs> it's a really, you know, subtle way of trying to, well, not so subtle way of trying to silence someone and say, you know what, what you're doing here doesn't matter. There are bigger issues out there. And that may be true. There are much bigger issues than what I'm dealing with in my home. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Mm. The fact that we have made progress and made a lot of progress doesn't mean that we get to sit down and stop. We can still want more. And I think we deserve to want more. Hold the line. Yeah. Hold the line. Yeah. Hi, um, I wanted to ask you about, um, I guess something I noticed even with my parents' dynamic is that mm. 
if my mum asked my dad to do more around the house, like, for example, if she was like, could you clean more? He'd say, well, I don't think it needs to be done. Mm. And I feel like something that happens a lot is that partners put the responsibility back on the woman and say, well, if you care, then you should do it because I don't feel like it, it's necessary. So I guess I'm wondering how you deal with people like that, where it kind of feels like it's like the woman's issue because men, like, some men have a lower standard and it's hard to... <laughs> It's sort of, or, or that's kind of their excuse of like, well, it, it, it's not really necessary, so it's kind of your thing. And, it, and it's sort of hard to justify that it is actually something that needs to be done. Yes, and the thing that makes that so hard is that it is the woman who is dealing with the fallout. And I think that this is such a weak argument to make that, you know, well, I, I don't think it's important, so I'm not going to do it. If you think it's important, you're going to do it. And I think this is why I'm such a huge um, supporter of creating a shared standard. I think that when you are in a partnership, you absolutely need to talk about why these things matter to you and expect to be, you know, at least met in the middle. I think that women really do this work and they do it thoughtfully. There is a reason these things need to be done and this is why, and I know that this is the way that everything runs most efficiently. This is why it matters. And I think one thing that we forget when we're having this, you know, this devil's advocate conversation is that you're talking about someone you're in a partnership with. What matters to you should matter to them. It, you know, what matters to us is really important. And to say that's your problem, that's saying that your life doesn't matter, your lived experience doesn't matter, your needs don't matter. And so we really need to put it back into the context of these are, these are people in a relationship and you need to be able to make that compromise for the people you love. It should not always be one person constantly compromising themselves. So when we, yeah. When we think that we're talking about the mundane and the trivial and the tedious, in fact, we're having a very deep conversation about self-worth and self-understanding and um, value of each other. Uh, we're out of time. I'm really sorry. Um, oh, quick, quick, let's do it, let's do it. <laughs> quick question going back to the praise issue because we were making fun of men who need a big clap for when they do something but I'm a shameless praise seeker and in my house we just do absolutely demand to be acknowledged for that <laughs> so so when 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 I've done something and I say oh did you notice something different in the backyard yeah. And go, oh yeah you've done a big cleanup yeah yeah I have thanks you know <laughs> like we'll both play that game because I, I don't want my work to be invisible yeah. and I am a lazy housekeeper so when I do bother I want someone to <laughs> and I think for the kids to see that it doesn't just happen without, so even if my husband takes on the, the role, I mean, it should still be acknowledged, I yep. think, both of us. Yeah. yeah, and this is something that is really big in our relationship now, is that we do praise that invisible work when both of us do it. So it, it was a bigger shift for my husband because I was very used to doing that because every time he did something, I'd be like, oh, you know, thank you for doing that, thank you for doing that. And he realizes now how much I do because he has to keep thanking me for it. <laughs> because the, ki <laughs> the kids have to see that. They have to see like, oh yeah, this work is being done and it's being valued. Um, you know, I don't think it necessarily works for everyone. I think some people are more comfortable just like going about and doing the work without constantly saying, saying thank you. But I like, 
I should I have like been kinder cream. about the sheets, you know. You put that. No, but I think I think once you have both people acknowledging it, there's no problem with praise, and I think that's actually a really good thing to do because it shows that we are valuing that work, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that's really important for kids to see is that oh yeah, that work is valuable, that work deserves praise and thanks, and it doesn't matter who's doing it, uh, you know, because we have this culture of always praising men for doing the stuff that women do without recognition. As long as we're recognizing everyone, I think we're good. L let's praise Gemma for the work that she's done today. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Thank you. Really great. Yeah. Th thank you all. I, I think we've all learned something. Yeah. And just leave it lying around somewhere. <laughs> Open like that. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks, Thanks for being here. And thank you, Cassie. Mm.